0: This episode was created on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past,
1: present, and emerging. She seems to have popped up at all these really interesting cultural moments, like not only in New York, but throughout different decades as well. Like she's got the Andy Warhol fashion. Art thing, and then she's got the music thing. She's hanging out with Polonius Monk, but then she's also friends with Scorsese, but then she's going to John Water's 50th birthday. So I like that she's sort of this chameleon in all these different places and, like, very much like a, you know, like a Zelig character. I, someone with a quick wit, I just, I, I have to take my hat off because you can be funny in many different ways, in my opinion, but having a quick wit, I think you've either got it. Or well, you don't
0: have it. Hi, I'm Dan Brophy, and this is The Passion PT. It's a podcast and a YouTube series dedicated to nailing your creative goals faster. From quitting your day job to starting a profitable side hustle, exploring your creativity as a de-stress tool, and working out what you're even passionate about in the first place, I'll be giving you tools and tips, motivation and inspiration to get out of your own way and get it done. The Passion PTMO is all about identifying your creative goals and making realistic pathways towards achieving them. And before we get started, this is my obligatory plea for you to subscribe, to review the show in iTunes, and most importantly, to share the episode with someone that might find it inspiring also. And you can also check out this episode on YouTube forward slash Dan Brophy or go to the links on my Instagram page, link in bio. This is a whole new series of The Passion PT. And I wanted to start the season with a mini series that will be running concurrently on the Passion PT podcast called These Could Be Heroes. And in each episode, I'm going to talk to one of my favorite creatives all about one of their heroes, someone they look up to, what aspects of their hero's process that they use in their own creative work, and in turn, what ideas or tools or tips you can take to use in your own process. So this week's episode I'm chatting to icon of the Melbourne DJ scene, DJ Prequel. He's just released an album which is utterly brilliant called Love or I Heard You Like Heartbreak. And on next week's show I'll be chatting to him all about the process of making that album. But in the meantime he's my first guest on this mini-series and I wanted to talk to him about someone that he and i are both a huge fan of it's not who you'd expect of two guys in their 30s to be looking up to it's fran leibovitz she is a new york intellectual she's a social commentator she is a 60 something lesbian jewish author and speaker who's recently released a series on netflix directed by none other than Martin Scorsese called Pretend It's a City in which she pretty much complains about the state of the world but it's also an examination of metropolitan life. I mean, she's the consummate Manhattanite and a big part of Fran's appeal if you love New York and stories about New York as so many of us have grown up consuming. She dissects and discusses the the history of New York and she's such a inroad into examining what inner city life is for all of us via the lens of her very specific new york perspective so tune in next week for more on prequels music but in the meantime please enjoy my very first episode of these could be heroes as part of the passion pt podcast where i talk with dj prequel all about fran leibovitz enjoy hey dj prequel (laughs) Hey Dan Broshi. <laughs> hey, I uh, I'm, thanks so much for joining me. I really wanted to do a chat all about the wonder that is Fran Leibovitz, in particular the new Netflix series Pretended to City*, yeah. but actually about Fran in general. And there was no one that I could think of that would be able to share the experience or the appreciation and riff on the subject matter as much
1: as you. Uh, well, it's an it's an honor. So
0: for the uninitiated. Because this whole series of, of, you know, focusing on cultural heroes is, uh, is really an education piece for, for those who have yet to discover as much as it is for those who are, are um, enthusiasts. So if you ever say to if you ever, someone ever says, you know, oh, who's Tran Leibovitz? How would you describe her?
1: Um, In terms of like what she's done from my research and my sort of looking into it is uh, she was a writer for Interview magazine that Andy Warhol had uh, for quite a few years and sort of got, you know, quote, unquote, famous from that. Which is funny because in the interview she says she didn't get along with Andy Warhol, which is just amazing. Um, And so then I think she went from Interview, she was doing um, like B-grade film reviews for a while. And funnily enough, interviewed, um, did something on one of Scorsese's first films, Boxcar Bertha. And then she released two books, I think, in the early 80s, which were like collected essays. And then she's been on this long uh, creative block. Uh, and then she's been doing like the public speaking circuit. And she's just, it's all... It's all it's just it's kind of like a Don Rickles kind of thing. There's no written down thing, it's just all chutzpah, like improvisational chutzpah, which is just my favourite thing.
0: She's like a stand-up comedian, isn't she? Even though she's an author and uh, a public speaker, when she she does have shtick the way a stand-up comedian, you know they've got stories that they've told before, especially yeah, when sure. doing the interview rounds. We're gonna be chatting to you in a few weeks' time all about your DJ career, your upcoming album release. But for those who are uninitiated about the DJ prequel experience, <laughs> you're a DJ. You've been playing around Melbourne for how long?
1: I started DJing when I was like 14 or 15. No so way! I slowly rose up the... So, so six or seven years? Yeah, so two years now. Um, and um, Yeah, I've just been playing around, working hard, could be working a bit harder but doing the thing and you know playing overseas a little bit when we could go overseas and making music and uh and now at the uh at this year um i'll be releasing my first full-length album which i'm very excited
0: right after because you've done some eps that have come out over the last because how long have you been considering yourself a producer and when was your first single release
1: well i i started releasing music in around 2000 and maybe late 2012 2013 just like just little stuff on Bandcamp that was just like downloaded for free and then um i started releasing music on record labels uh in 2014 it was my first official release called polite strangers which i actually have tattooed on my leg <laughs> um and so, yeah, and then I've actually, I, had, I made an album when I was like 16 that never got released. I made another album that never got released. And then this one, I'm like, this one's getting released. This is the third time lucky. This one's going to get released.
0: Right, well, there, yeah, there's, there's. I, um, I've been, you've been filling me in on the, 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 not only the album itself, but then some of the, the video graphic components and then the, the, the work you've been building around the release. So I'm super excited to dissect your process, your creative inspirations, your you know how you design, how you how you've designed the work itself—all those things—when we chat later on. But
1: come away,
0: yeah. But all, when it comes to uh, to something like the the Fran Leibovitz experience, for me, I think when I would describe her to someone, I couldn't. I, you, you can't help but not reference how she turns up in the world as someone who is incredibly. Uh, iconic in her presentation, so she yes. is uh, n- n- known for her sartorial flair. And if you ever see her, at, I think at any point throughout her career since the '80s, you would see her presented in a very specific ensemble, which usually involves a, a crisp white shirt, you know, uh, cowboy boots. Some exquisitely tailored jacket, a high collar. You know, she's got a. She, she to the untrained eye, she she could be like a, a, an army colonel. or, You know, she just she looks so militant <laughs> in her presentation, and it's part of her branding. I think the look is so such a. And it's also
1: the it's also the stern like no bullshit face as well. Like let's it, her face is like let's cut the crap, which is and, a whole shtick as well.
0: Yeah, her her whole uh, the, the the and which actually. Uh, crosses into the this idea of her current um appeal which i think i think for people like you and i who enjoy a witty turn of phrase and a clever angle on a sociological or cultural phenomena she would be a go-to and in particular you know i've i've spent a handful of weeks in new york in my life but yet i feel such a fondness for the city and the ideal of the city and she's the she would be one of the number one New York Manhattan you know personalities Do so know funny? She?
1: Being a half Italian Australian Jew who loves all the mafia films and hip hop and all that stuff I've never been to New York
0: Wow oh my god I <laughs> I so on the one I'm hand find that like, hard to believe but also yes, you yeah. can imagine that one could just consume New York culture their entire life and uh, feel a kinship to a city that, that, that is more of an idea of a city as opposed to the place itself.
1: Well, I think that also speaks to her observations like, you know, she, she has what some may call an observational humour, um, albeit with a very wry um, Sarcastic, sort of complaining jewish angle which to me is fantastic i absolutely love it but you know i've never been to new york like i know about the historical landmarks and whatever but i don't know specifically and in um scorsese's first documentary on her public speaking which came out in 2010 i think you know i still haven't been to new york so i don't know anything but it's just her ability to dissect um, you know, uh, sociological and, and, and political and cultural movements and ways of thinking and, you know, city mentality stuff in that sort of right Jewish sense of humor. It's like, well, I haven't been to New York, but like, I totally get what you're saying. Like, Because everyone's on their phones here as well, when they're crossing the street or, you know, we lament certain parts of let's say Melbourne back in the 90s or the 80s as much as they lament certain parts of New York. So. I understand it on that, but when I'm in New York, finally touch wood when it happens, I think it'll open up another chasm of uh, appreciation for the way that she goes about it.
0: The very first time I ever went to Manhattan in 2003, I think I was 20, and I was walking around, and it was just this uh, this flip book of scenes and moments of that Woody Allen film, that episode of Sex in the City, that. Muppets take Manhattan moment, <laughs> and, and I think if you love uh, you know you and I are, are comic book enthusiasts Gotham City is basically Manhattan it, and those ideals of the metropolitan iconic city just stand in stand in for sort of everyone's idea of, of a city and I think to be able to comment on New York is not to comment on um, oh sorry to comment on Manhattan is not to comment on New York specifically it's sort of to comment on city life, no matter what the city of the world is. So it, it exactly. almost yeah. has this sort of every city, um, it, it's a, it's almost like an avatar of the every city. And so when Fran is making a cultural commentary about Manhattan, it, it's so easy to transpose it to Melbourne or to London or to any big uh, metropolitan machine.
1: Where, and I think that's why, you know, she, she tours the world. She doesn't just tour New York. Like, she came and spoke in Melbourne and Australia. To my knowledge, she hadn't been here before, but... You know, yeah, she did The, the, the is a
0: opera house... They're universal, they're funny. Yeah, she's really... Uh, all the articles that have been coming out about her, which you and I have been sharing recently, have been examining her popularity now as someone who is really popular on, in particular, the university uh, college... Tour speaking camp, speaking yes, speaking circuit, and I can't help but think that in this day and age, where nothing is certain and everything is, where the notion of truth and fact has been threatened, here you have someone who is unabashedly rigid with her, her her respect for and appreciation for truth and fact. It seems to be quite a a rigidity to which she sticks to
1: fact as a matter of importance. You know, it makes me, it makes me think about, um, in terms of accountability, and I, I mean obviously this is a hypothetical, but I think it would be worthwhile to note that she's not on any social media, she's not on the internet, she doesn't have email, doesn't have Twitter, doesn't have an iPad, doesn't read, you know, scrolly, whatever, so I think maybe, especially these days. I mean, she can join Twitter and Instagram and whatever, and do a thing, and like I'm sure she's capable of doing it. She chooses not to, so I think when you don't have all those outlets and you're not plugged into that sort of social media, you know, matrix, as it were, you might just give less of a fuck about what everyone's talking about because you just don't know that they're talking about it. That's her like public thing, though. Like I know that's her whole shtick, but like if you if you listen and know the people that she's been friends with you know, people like, um, and I didn't know this, people like Thelonious Monk. Or, or I know she had a very big friendship with Toni Morrison. I mean, you can't do four hours of Fran Leibowitz's shtick to Toni Morrison and have a 20-year friendship. I'm sure she's a good listener, and she understands as well, and she learns, and she takes things in. Like, as much as it's her shtick, like, i am I'm sure there's, you know, a little bit of a you know, when the camera's off, Fran, like, you know, like Don, Don Rickles was the same. Like, he, you know, used to give people shit and that was his whole shtick. But behind closed doors, everyone was like he was a sweet, warm-hearted, you know, old Jewish man.
0: I, I, I also, yeah, I agree. I don't think that from what I understand, she has a lot of stories to tell about people of all ages and backgrounds that she has engaged in meaningful conversations with. And she's chosen to recount anecdotes from conversations had with children people in their 20s her older famous sort of friends who have been seminal to jazz and uh, um, fiction writing and politics and every, she seems to attend a lot of parties do a lot of socializing engage in a lot of conversations because what you get got a chance to really appreciate in the film that was made in 2010 by Martin Scorsese public speaking was that rich history that she delved into when she came to New York in the 70s, which is you go to bars all day and after all afternoon, all evening, and you sit around and you drink and you smoke and you talk and exchange ideas. And I, I think that culture of the, which, you know, Manhattan intellectualism is sort of based around, which is gathering in public spaces to discuss and dissect, I think that's how she gathers her data points and her intel around uh, ideas and she would probably get a cross-section of, of a society concept before she decides what her stance on something is. A, a, big, a big part of her college so uh, speaking rounds involves people putting a hand up and asking a question of her. For which I noticed she has a trick which I'm going to use, which is whenever someone asks her a question, they don't get a microphone, so they are oh, usually yelling amazing. to her. Amazing. I love, that. They love don't a, that. Don't get a mic. And then she gets to say, she gets to repeat the question that they've asked her herself, buying herself another 30 to 60 seconds of time to formulate a response. So oh, what that woman asked was, what do I think about, you know kids walking through the street on their phones every day. And so in that time, it's rather than just give, give the immediate response, she actually has she's given herself a little extra moment to go, well, I'll tell you what I think, and usually she'll come up with a, an anecdote or a story that has some relevance to what's been asked, but it'll probably have been a concept or a story that has been thought about previously that is relevant to the question that was asked.
1: 100%. I think, I think the really interesting thing that you said before as well is you know, and which you would do now to a certain degree, but perhaps in the heyday of, you know, the 70s and 80s, hanging around bars and listening to people's opinions, which I actually had this conversation with a friend of ours, Ben Wrightsmith, yesterday, which is the lost art of not saying what you think about a thing straight away, being like, you know because everyone's an expert now and I'm guilty of it sometimes I'm sure you are and everyone is but it's like as soon as something happens all of a sudden prequels the expert on you know the bombing in Lebanon like, I don't know anything about that and but people are so quick to tweet about it or this about it and I think that you know I think it's nice when people go hey this is what I know about this situation but I'm actually not an expert and I'm willing to hear other people's opinions and for my own and I'm not claiming to be, you know, the world's foremost expert in nuclear storage in the Middle East in the mid eighties and the Iran country or whatever it is. And or, I think that's kind of I think that's kind of missing because we've got so much information. It's kind of like almost everyone expects you to be an expert on everything because it's all there.
0: Or I just think it, it's a weird thing. Wouldn't it be great to be able to say, and you've reminded me how much more how much more valuable this offering would be in that space. Um, this is what I know about it, and this is what I want to know about it. You know, you could even just discuss yeah. your, like, what are the things that perplex you the most about the situation that you would like to find out more about? Because I personally find I love to comment on something in the social media space or explore it further once I've contemplated it enough that I am going to be sharing some insight into it that That I'm comfortable with yeah yeah and that i've come to that i think is actually of value and i think if it's something that because i often find you know really the extent of my opinion is you know usually about the release of some pop music album for example so it's never really no one really wants to know my opinion on the bombing in lebanon but about you know do i think Katy perry has another number one hit in her you know like it's it's usually something trivial like that but you're picking your battles dan picking your battles (laughs) But in this, but in the in this, but that being said, how often have we given our decree on a the release of an album the day after it comes out? When music is sometimes designed to be a slow burn, and it's sometimes you know, designed.
1: It's so interesting you say that because you know when we have a chat about my album, it, it links me to a thing that I've been thinking about for a while, which is people's obsession with how long it takes an artist to make their art. Mm. And it's, it, I've been thinking about it so much recently. We can get into that later, but it reminded me of that. But the other thing is, is about talking about something that you don't really know about. There's also an elitism to it. And I really don't like that. And it's kind of relevant in the DJ world. It's kind of relevant in like film world and whatever. But for a perfect example, the last time I saw you uh, late last year, mm. We were talking about some films and some series we'd seen and whatever, and I recommended some things to you. And you said what people should do. You should be like, oh, I don't know anything about that. Tell me more. That sounds like I might be interested in that or whatever. And you mentioned some things to me, and I was like, oh, I don't know that director. I've never seen that you know, that series before. Like, it'd be interesting instead of being like, oh yeah, I know about it, like blah, 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 blah. Like, or, or if
0: I don't know about it, it's not worth knowing about is another angle exactly. that some people have, which is, you know, exactly. I'm so across everything that's worth No, I mean, the thing is, you, you and I tend to rustle up things from the past which no one could be, you know, you, it's, it's okay if you don't know about that little niche of cinema or that particular yes, documentary.
1: exactly. It's okay and I think there needs to be more of like... You know, it's okay that you don't know a thing. It's okay you've never heard this song. Like, isn't half the point of it to to share? Isn't that what we're doing here as well? Like, oh my God, like, I wish I was Dan Brophy so I could watch that film for the first time again. Like, imagine someone watching this and then going and watching um, public speaking for the first oh. time.
0: You know, the perfect example is whenever you and I see each other, Whenever we're around each other, it instantly goes to you know what are you watching, what are you loving, what's blown your mind, what did you you know what are you obsessed with, and it's usually this all I always fill my the note section of my phone with recommendations for things that I need to go and see, and then the next time I see you, I'll be like oh I saw that thing, I loved it, it blew my mind. Um, What what hooked you about the Fran Leibovitz experience? Because I think the thing that I Allowed, like I, I put public speaking the documentary that Martin Scorsese made before the Netflix series from 2010, I put public speaking on my laptop as one of the downloads that just lives on my laptop along with a few other fav- favorite movies and key documentaries that I just watch when I need a little bit of a, a boost or an alignment to something that is what does it give me? It's, it reminds me to savor the city that I'm in and to love where I live and when I consume that energy, the, those ideas, as served up so beautifully by a friend, Leibovitz, it really makes me want to live my city in a in a way that is um, passionate and dedicated and um, judgmental, no, I'm just <laughs> totally, and <laughs> or, or, or just you know um, with a certain level of. At- paying attention to—I think that's a wonderful thing. I appreciate about that. Yeah, that's about
1: that's the key what thing. What Fran
0: does—it's—it's it's actually yeah. moving through your space and your city and your life with a, with an attention to detail and a for someone who's so curmudgeonly you know, she's such a curmudgeon in so many ways. She has—you cannot put it past her—that she lives a life fueled by passion because everything 100%. she engages with on the daily, she does because she loves it. And if she doesn't love it, she wouldn't do it because she doesn't suffer fools. Um, is there anything about the, the Fran experience that resonates with you on like a, a gut level?
1: I mean, the, I mean, first of all, I've never read any of her books or collected essay books. I tried to find a few on Amazon. I think they're out of print. Maybe they're going to print again. So I'd be interested in what she's like in that form. But in terms of my first experience with her watching the Scorsese, the original documentary, I just loved how observant she was. She like... She's going 100 miles a minute in her mouth, but her eyes are just picking apart everything around her as well. Um, so her brain must be always on like 200. So I love that about her because often, look, if I'm being completely frank, you know, I'm a big loud talker as well, and I think that sometimes people think that I'm not a good listener, a or b, that I don't take in what's going on. So I saw myself a little bit tonight bit of a narcissistic way of looking at it, but it's true. Um, the other thing is I love, you know, being a Jew, and if, look, even if I wasn't, I love the sense of humor of just like, just shutting shit down in a funny, smart way. The timing, her comedic timing when she's answering questions and things, it's like, it's just, and, and when you watch the documentary, like, okay, maybe they rehearsed, maybe they fed her the questions, whatever. But then when you see her live, it's like, no, she's that fast in real life. Like, she's not fucking around. Like, she's got an answer for everything. I love that. I loved, um, someone made a point in that New York Times article I sent you, a bit of a negative one, but it was funny that she's so um, critical of people's fashion, but she wears the same thing every day. And it kind of reminded me of another Person that I looked up to uh, from work point of view, not not that I have anything to do with fashion, which would be Karl Lagerfeld, because the later stages of his life he obviously wore the exact same thing and I think now that I think about it I may have seen the Carl Lagerfeld documentary which is amazing around the same time as the Fran one so I just love the idea of this like seven-year-old Jewish lesbian who wears the same shit every day calling people out on what they wear to me it's just that's my humor in a nutshell so I love that about her and I love that she's almost like um she seems to be almost like this um or like Forrest Gump kind of character where she seems to have popped up at all these really interesting cultural moments, like not only in New York, but throughout different decades as well. Like she's got the Andy Warhol fashion art thing. And then she's got the music thing. She's hanging out with Thelonious Monk, but then she's also friends with Scorsese. But then she's going to John Waters' 50th birthday. So I like that she's sort of this chameleon in all these different places, and like very much like a you know like a Zelig character, so I really like that about her as well. And someone with a quick wit, I just I, I have to take my hat off because you can be funny in many different ways, in my opinion. But having a quick wit, I think you've either got it or you don't have it. One hundred
0: percent. That was my
1: first impressions of
0: friend Yeah, I, I I've never made the Carl Lagerfeld association. He's another one of my. Uh, heroes who I would love to uh, dissect at some stage and I actually met Karl Lagerfeld in a shop in Paris and I asked him if he would mind this is before he this was 2007 so it was before he had sort of really become the cool like an icon to teenagers he was always right. fabulous he was always, yeah, was always successful oh, yeah. he was always famous but prior to but up uh, even to the 90s before he reinvented himself as like a vampire <laughs> with his high collars and his you know fingerless
1: gloves and... before, he, before he auditioned for every Jim Jarmusch film without knowing about it
0: totally he uh, like, you know once upon a time because late, late 80s 90s Carl was full of figures had the fan was like you know really flamboyant was a whole nother character and then he to me he rebranded himself in this way that was eternal eternally youthful Rock and roll, hard-edged and cool, and, and iconic, and iconic and unwavering in, in his in his sensibility, and I something about the bra- like creating yourself as this iconic brand to allow yourself to be as palatable and recognizable and and uh, uh, digestible as as possible to kids as someone in your seventies is so much like what Fran has. Done either consciously or Absolutely. unconsciously, where she is her, her biggest uh, audience are college students. It's not yeah. like she's popular with people in their 70s any more than. No. You know, it's actually she's, she's really skews quite young in her demo. And I Agreed. think there's something about the fact that her mere existence and popularity as a 70 something lesbian Jewish wo- woman is this iconic powerhouse of opinion and strength of character and wit and wisdom who's so sage in her kind of, you know, the the neat ways in which she can compartmentalize quite lofty concepts. Uh, I think she is just uh, a, such a, a brilliant icon of of the modern day and her just her showing up and being herself celebrates so many things that should be championed in society that I can't imagine anyone that's come before her who's even been remotely similar
1: like I mean I mean there's obviously you know like you know the, the great raconteurs of you know the 21st century yeah like maybe like a century
0: whatever yeah like a Dorothy think, Parker but, or someone who's been a social commentator th- yeah. in the past but I don't know anyone who's who has um, uh, existed in the culture in the 20th century anyway
1: the way quite the way she has look I think um, I think going back to the sort of comparisons of her and Carl I think that both their documentaries that roughly came out around the same time, I think that had a lot to do with um, the youth exposure of, of them and their brand because, you know, I wasn't around in the 70s, I didn't know what the fuck Interview Magazine was, I'd never heard of Fran Lee Woods, I didn't read her books, I didn't know, i would never been to New York, I didn't know from Bar of um, And you know, I knew Carl Lagerfeld because, you know, not that I'm a fashion guy, but I knew what yeah, he did, but when there was the documentary mm-hmm. of Carl, I was like, oh and i wanted to dive deeper but in terms of the evolution of fran i mean she's always done like the late night talk show circuit like i sent you that clip with all of them together and it's like three and a half hours or whatever and it's just heaven you just put it on and just take notes on how to answer a question and listen but i think that um i also find her cultural relevance um really organic and really not forced like i don't think she's got like 40 agents behind her telling her like you should join twitter now and you should do this and you should dress like that and you should do i think she's just like i'm doing me and i'm gonna update my vibes and i'm gonna update what i talk about because i'm not gonna talk about fucking Andy Warhol for the rest of my life in the magazine or whatever so she's making you know current cultural commentary but she's really um, eased her way into sort of her uh, perhaps second stage or third stage of her public life, um, especially with the speaking circuit because she was a writer. Everyone knew as a writer, and you know maybe she would go to parties and shit in New York. But she was a writer primarily, and after she did her two books and she got you know the writer's block, it was just like okay, well you've got a fucking amazing brain and a mouth on you. Start doing speaking stuff, and this was back in the days when. Uh, celebrities or whatever you want to call them, would go on late night talk shows when they didn't have a thing to, pr- to promote. I mean, you would do it when you had a book or a film or whatever coming out. But, you know, people would go on these talk shows to shoot the shit and be funny. And I kind of miss that as well. I kind of miss someone going on, not just to be like, and Jamie's new album's coming. know, oh, this is ironic coming from me, but like, you know, she'd, she'd go on just to talk about shit and, and, and do her thing and I, I think um I really like that about her as well and and going back to the evolution thing it, it's been really organic and it's been really not forced and you know she still doesn't have the internet and doesn't have Facebook and shit and she's still like I mean we're talking about it like they just did a send up of her and Marty's thing on SNL I mean I know that's not the biggest cultural barometer in the world but it's something and I think that it's very, um, or perhaps from from where we're sitting, it's very effortless.
0: Yeah, it doesn't, she doesn't strike me as someone who has, uh, I mean, I'm, I, I'm sure she has people that she works with, I mean, she, sure. she's probably not booking her own accommodation, but I also, you know, you don't get that, because she's not on, for example, seven social media platforms, you don't get the feeling that she has this team that's sort of falsifying things that she's apparently yeah. saying and doing. She's not and sitting
1: down having brand meetings every Monday. She's 20.
0: not She's not batching content. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> to drip feed on
0: the ground. You know, I feel like she is... Such, she's, I And mean, maybe that's part of the antidote to the current day which she presents because she feels as someone who is, you know, in their 70s as a breath of fresh air. She, to me, feels like the antidote to the current day where everything feels so rote and done before and obvious and, and I also and I also How,
1: think she's a little bit inaccessible in a way as well like I mean obviously I'm being a hypocrite by saying this because I've got Twitter and Instagram and all the rest of it but it's like if you want to hear Fran she doesn't write anything so you can't really read anything you know maybe she'll have an interview here or there in the New York Times or whatever or you know, New Yorker mm. Scorsese's last documentary on it was 11 years ago this one came out this year if you want to see her you've pretty much got to go and see her speak Yeah. And so it's Absolutely. like this is what i do this is where i do it you know she's not firing off tweets or whatever not that there's anything wrong with that you know john rivers and, and whoever else don rickles is on twitter at the latest stages of his life but i think because she's also very steadfast in like the i also know what i'm good at and i think that some people uh, their brand whatever it may be if they're a comedian or a musician or whatever it doesn't necessarily translate to different types of social media. Like, I know really funny people who are not funny on Twitter. Mm. And I know people who are not really that funny, but their Twitter feed is fucking hilarious. So, I would... would, Conan O'Brien is a perfect example. I love Conan O'Brien, and I think he's fucking hilarious. I think his Twitter is not funny. I really don't find it funny. But I listen to his podcast, and I watch his interviews, and I fucking laugh my ass off. So... I think maybe Fran also knows that, like, not so much stay in your lane, but, like, I know what I'm doing, and this is how I do it, and this is where I do it. So, Puffinus, Scorsese documentary, come see me.
0: It, it comes down... It does actually touch on what we discussed before, which is contemplating a concept to the degree that you have a something to a value to offer about the thing. Yes. She's not putting herself in situations where she's sharing... Shtick about a concept that happened yesterday without a real, without bringing it back to a greater, more top line generalist philosophy yeah. comment that speaks to something that she's already thought about. So you notice when someone is asking her a question, it generally, I often observe how things are linked back to things that she's thought about and she's got some opinion on.
1: And I think that there's something. Which is amazing! To that. She's got that link back for every topic, and when you're in the audience and you're calling out a bunch of random shit, she's got something to say about it. And then she does what you said, and she links it back to the greater theme of it, which just speaks to her skills as a you know as a as a public speaker, obviously.
0: Yeah, it's almost like it's more. It goes into sort of being a good uh, as well as a good orator, a good debater, because it's about sort of proving a point with some evidence that you're collecting from your uh, some anecdotal evidence everything that she has is just tends to be anecdotal but it's uh it's she's yeah she's really great at you feel like you're in a the world is her courtroom and she's giving a closing address constantly
1: before she rests her case and you know that's it um, which is funny because she played one of the judges in wolf of wall street
0: yeah and, and I think on, and on Law and Order I think she's got a she has a history Lord of Lord. playing oh, yeah. judges on uh, she has judge cameos on certain certain so films this, this
1: is before this meme was invented but when I first saw Wolf of Wall Street and Fran Leibowitz popped up I was in a full cinema with a whole bunch of people at this club I used to work at and I was the only one, like, literally doing the Leo meme before it happened. I was like, Fred woods That's Fred woods And everyone's like, who the fuck's Fred woods That's just some judge. And I'm like, Fred woods is the judge!
0: So, I, I know, it's, uh, it brought me, brought me much joy as well, because it really feels like it's her natural habitat to be in that space. Judgmental. Um, well, she
1: always talks about how she wants to be a Supreme Court judge, because it would be really easy, because she can pass quick judgment, and she doesn't actually have to physically write... The, the opinion on on the, on the case because she get one of the clerks to do it, which I think is just such a perfect thing. Like it's just that concept is just so brilliant because obviously to be a Supreme Court judge you have to know the law inside out, but she's totally. just like I'll just cast judgment and then my clerk will type up my like dissent or <laughs> agree or whatever.
0: The messy details. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I am. Um, yeah, I that's I. Thank you so much. I feel like for anyone who is new. To this this world. Hopefully, we've given people an opportunity to work out whether they want to go down the rabbit hole. It's. An, I mean, I've read the books, and so I can honestly say that the best. Oh, I haven't. Ah, I, I, I I've, I'll try and rustle them up and send them to you because they, they are out of print. I actually heard Fran on another podcast that I came across just recently. Oh, the one you sent to me. The one the I the sent to you, saying that she, that, thing, yeah. that she was uh, out of print currently because. Um, circa COVID all of these printing presses oh, they are on yeah, the
1: right.
0: and so all of these uh, so you can only you could potentially buy her digitally however that being said I found that while she feels so current when you hear her speak the texts which were 1979 and 1981 were the full official releases of her 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 commentary books they were they, they, they belong to a time and I think you can put yourself right. in a place where you're imagining to me it's lovely to kind of see what was worth commenting on in the late 70s early 80s in Manhattan one of them is Metropolitan Life and I forget what the other one's called the
1: other one's Collected Essays Collected Essays yes
0: and and not only are the the topics um, of their time in in many ways but I feel that her stories come to life when she is delivering them personally so it was a great point of comparison to go yes this is this is humorous writing you know she talks she'll relay a conversation between a Hollywood agent trying to sell her book and she'll describe him using witticisms as he sounded audibly tan you know like really beautiful terms of phrase where, <laughs> where you can could, you could appreciate her, her wit in terms of how she uses language in the written form in a way that she would feel, it would feel a little bit like she was laying it on too thick if she was to use those terms in, in person
1: but I... It's interesting, it's, it's funny you say that because the comparison and and, and and seeing the line, I found a very similar thing with Jerry Seinfeld's latest book, oh, which essentially yeah. is just a collection of his, his stand-up jokes, and while they're funny, some of them I knew from Seinfeld, because obviously I know everything about Seinfeld, and some of them I hadn't heard before, so the ones I knew, I read... I, I read them and, and played it back in my head as with the visual interpretation, and much like what you're describing with Fran's work, it's interesting to see the difference between that's funny on paper and that's in 1981, much like Seinfeld's joke in the 80s, which are chronicled in a book, and I've seen you say something like that live, and you know, also an interesting study in the evolution of an idea in terms of, like, this is when I wrote it down, and five years later I did it live and it became this and I did it that way and so it, it's, a, it's a good point
0: Yeah, I, I think I love the fact that a big part of the Fran story is her writer's blockade where she has been stifled I love how She calls it a blockade, not yeah. a
1: block It's she's, so good
0: She's been stifled out of writing for 30 years now and that—more, almost 40 years actually, and since 81 Yeah, 40 years So part of her Stick is she's someone who acknowledges that she, her, her critic is so strong that anything she would think to write, she would be so critical of that. I'm sure she talks her out self out of a lot of concepts. So she's like the walking embodiment of the part of your brain that says, "No, that's not good enough. It's don't don't mm-hmm. do that." And that, the number one that, rule for the anyone.
1: Medical term. The medical term for that is um, being a Jew. Uh, <laughs> <the medical>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think that that the. critic the inner critic that has led her to be uh stifled in her her output of her writing i mean maybe the like having read the writing and for it to have brought me far less joy than the speaking it's almost as if the writing block just needed to happen so that the speaking career could be what it is and i that to me is that turns me on as a concept because i love talking to people about the journey of their creative process and i'm interested in the idea that something that you thought you were going to do isn't the thing that you ended up doing but was it any less worthwhile a pursuit initially so as to allow you to take the the pivot that took you to the place that you're really meant to be uh, I mean, I, it's I,
1: like it's like falling in love as well you know would you have would you have still fallen in love with that person if you if they were gonna break your heart i mean i know i know i'm tying it into my album <laughs> it's a very similar. It's a very similar concept. It's like, you know, maybe, you know, maybe yeah, maybe maybe if she kept writing, she just would have released one more book and then kind of not got a book deal and then, or even you know, or even like a book, some even, opinion opinion writer in some fucking third rate magazine, and we wouldn't be here doing a fucking podcast about her in twenty twenty one on the other side of the world and never met her before,
0: or or even maybe she would have released a book every two years. And as a result, never have taken the journey that took her to the place to become as irresistible to the culture as she is now, where she was successful. But I mean, there are there are plenty of successful writers who are super prolific who were not belling over in the same way. So I wonder whether or not um, the Great
1: pronunciation. The <laughs> <laughs> the, don't, think, don't think it went unnoticed. Very good.
0: Um, I, I I wonder whether or not that journey. To get to this place, needed to have the intention towards writing, for which the blockade had to be a necessary part in order to give her, to give us the the true purpose work that we're seeing through this orator storyline journey.
1: Well, I think it's I think it's funny when, you can, in terms of thinking about a, a writer's block, or as she calls it, a writer's blockade, it, it, it's a concept I think about a lot because, you know, if you've got a blockage. Uh, either in your brain or, in you know, a pipe in a sink, like it still has to come out somewhere. And, you know, I, I always, I, this is really weird and I'm not high, but I always think about this when I delete something off my computer. I'm like, but my computer doesn't shit it out. So where does it actually go? And so I think that it may be the same thing for Fran as maybe that writer's block then and manifested itself into I'm now the mouth. Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. and I think that it's it's a very interesting concept because when you're blocked, either you get unblocked through the same process of whatever it is you're doing—writing a book or a short story or a film script or whatever—or maybe you get unblocked by becoming a fucking sculpture artist or a fucking painter or a you know. Bodybuilder or whatever it is. So, I think that you're right in saying that maybe if she did write a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth and whatever book, that would have been creatively enough flow for her, and she wouldn't have had the block to go. Oh, maybe you should try speaking in public. Maybe you should do a speaking day. Maybe you should go on the talk show circuit more.
0: Hundred percent, absolutely. I I I would think that there's something in that. I think that there is something. I think that the the bitter pill, or like, I always think of it as the grain of sand at the center of the oyster that causes the irritation that creates the pearl. You know, I think art is the pearl, and I think that artists are the oysters that are irritated by a grain of sand, and her writer's blockade, to me, is that grain of sand that has created this beautiful pearl, which is the embittered... I've seen people do a dysfunctional version of this. I think what Fran does is a functional version of this, which is I can't do it. Therefore, if you're going to do it, you better be fucking great. You know, she kind of talks about the amount of people who sh- who write books who shouldn't write books because people people Always children scared. children keep on getting told how good they are, and people shouldn't <laughs> necessarily keep telling children how good they are until they do something that's actually worth commending. Um, which I think is you know a beautifully you know slanted commentary on the way in which parenting works these days. But there's something about that her if she was completely free-flowing with her creative ideas and had total peace with her process and was just allowing experimental free-flow to come through her, she wouldn't have that cynicism and that kind of... the brutality of her wit that demands a certain level of excellence from the culture. It was
1: the perfect storm. It was a perfect storm of all those things. And I love your analogy about the sand and the oyster thing. And I love what I love about that as well is is that it's not there's a thing of sand and then you got an oyster the next day. It's like it's got a
0: the, it's that got calcification a wall, it's a process. Up, it's
1: got a exactly, and with that comes a bit of the Jewish cynicism, and we mix that up together. Yeah. And we get this cynical, cynical oyster, this observant, cynical oyster, and and I think what you said about her um, in terms of her you know, obviously that she's very good at what she does. I think that some people who perhaps don't know enough or don't appreciate comedy or don't understand, um, you know, in specific like um, Jewish comedy, quote unquote, I think that they may look at her as, oh, she's just some old bitch that's fucking rambling and complaining about everything, which on the surface she is, but it's almost like it's the art of complaining. And mm. I think that not necessarily You have to be Jewish to complain Or you have to be Jewish to understand that But I think that To um
0: yeah, cause I was about to say I've, I've got, I had an Anglo-Indian grandfather That would have given any Embittered old Jewish man a run for his money When it comes to complaining But maybe that's just the, the, the wisdom of, of, of being older And being allowed to, yeah. uh, to, to You know you Get a certain amount of grace for your, your sort of curmudgeonly embitterment as an older person.
1: But someone could get up there and try to do what Fran does and literally just come off as, well, you're just fucking complaining and you're not doing anything and doing all that. And all you do is go around New York and just complain. And like, yeah, that's what she does, but it's so much more than that. It's the art of it. It's the timing. It's the observations. It's the understanding. It's the waiting to form the opinion. It's the quick-wittedness. It's the delivery. It's the cynicism. It's the acceptance. It's the denial. It's all these things. And it's just, it's to me, It's I mean, that's why we both love her. It's just a fucking pleasure to watch.
0: And also, I I mean, I think that maybe I couldn't love someone who was just complaining for the sake of it. I think I love it because it's just, the complaining is just a framework of, of shtick through which to express her sort of adoration for and appreciation of all of the things that are uh, that were so um, that she that she loved so much that then maybe changed or were inter- interfered with or affected by agreed yeah you know,
1: the, the idea, I, think, I think it's sorry sorry
0: you go oh the, the idea that she that she can recount a time where Times Square was a place that you'd go to find certain bookshops or you know laundromats or butchers considering that it was once this kind of um, for people who lived within a few blocks it was a an epicenter of commerce before it became like a tourist attraction when new york yeah. went bust in the the 70s or in the, when, when did they create times square as we know it in the 70s or 80s um and so i, I think
1: i think late 70s maybe
0: Yeah. so I, I think her sort of ability to Relish the the what once was this beautiful icon of metropolitan life that's been bastardized by hicks from out of town who've rolled on in on tourist buses and are you know which is hilarious tickets. because
1: she's not from New York.
0: I see. I love that even more. Totally, but I think her, she what she would say is she doesn't roll in and want to change things to be more like the, the towns right. that she come right. from. She is a cultural refugee who came to New York in search of it's Manhattanness, and I think her yes. um, what she wanted to do was celebrate and assimilate into what she discovered, as opposed to make it more like home.
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting what you said before as well about um, her um, her cynicism is, it is it's thick, but it is the cocoon. And I think that once you delve into the the idea in the middle. It's it's a very not all the time but most of the time it's a very intellectual critique on social behaviours and social norms and it's it's a very similar way Dave Chappelle does it except his outer layer is not cynicism his outer layer might be blue language or you know making absurdity out of a really serious situation. But at, then it's at the core, it's the message. And I think that that's a really good point because that's that's what Fran does. It's just that she's going to fucking call you out and say, oh, you shouldn't write a book and blah, 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 blah. But inside the meaning of that is something so much more. So I think that when people are a little bit like Aaron with her, I think they're only getting that albeit thick outer layer. But I think that they're not really getting to the, the yoke. They're not getting to the middle of the whole thing.
0: Yeah, which is a lovely way of reminding us that when you do get to go go on a journey with something and peel back the layers and you get to whatever is there at the core of it, it is a much more... uh, She's prepackaged this experience so that you can instantly have this journey with her. And that's probably what makes people so fond of her. That that she's... if, If it was all radiance and joy on every layer, I think it would get... It would maybe become less interesting or get old quite quickly. But instead she Would invites you... Which boring. Oh, boring, yeah, exactly. She, instead she invites you to potentially have resistance to her, uh, her sort of cynicism. But, but really that's just a very thinly veiled experience surrounding what is ultimately like passion and appreciation and relishing certain elements of,
1: of life. Uh, and I love... See, for me, I love that it can be both because to me, when I say that I'm Fran and Marty's you know illegitimate child you know obviously I don't look anything like either of them but but in terms of what you're describing is is and and not to make it about me but she does that thing where it's like it's super sinister you know she's very cynical and it's this and it's that and it's quitty and it's dismissive but then on the inside there's this like warmth and appreciation and reverence and respect for, you know, when she speaks about directors and, and artists and musicians and there's a great respect and reverence for them and, you know, uh, tip of the hat and, you know, this is person was such a great, you know, when she speaks about Toni Morrison, which I guess according to her was a very good friend of hers, um, I assumed that it was, you know, there's there's that you can see the love you can see the passion you can see the respect you can see someone that knows when someone's fucking not only a friend but someone that's very fucking good at what they do and she you know there's still that little bit of cynicism there but you see the love as well
0: she's she's yeah well, um this is going to be well, we'll, we'll wrap up in a second cuz this was going to be a much shorter conversation and I've loved the chance we're to, on hour
1: nine of the <laughs> Fran <Friendly> Leibovitz <laughs> podcast with
0: Dan we, we knew that we were gonna this was gonna happen so we shouldn't have been, I shouldn't be surprised okay. but I will say in closing that one of the things that I truly appreciate about her which I I, some of my favorite artists Andy Warhol would be a great example in getting into under the skin of a, this particular artist Fran Leibovitz you have uh, instantly got exposure to all these other notable people who she's worked with, has is friends with, can recount Absolutely, stories alongside yeah. her. So you can't know her without knowing really key authors, musicians, filmmakers that she has, um, I suppose, aligned herself personally and professionally with. So it's a lovely kind of Whitman sampler of brilliant 20th century voices. And Absolutely. Uh,
1: and I, if you didn't know about them, like, I don't know a lot about Toni Morrison. Mm. I kind of like... I knew I knew her name. I knew a little bit about her, but then hearing Fran speak about her, I'm like, oh, well, maybe um, I should go and explore yeah. that as well. And what a great introduction!
0: And to- absolutely. Do you know who who is the other big friend with Toni Morrison and associate of his Oprah? So I think it's I think right. I think if she's good enough for Fran with and Oprah, she's good enough for me. <laughs> uh, note to self: read <laughs> *Beloved* by Toni Morrison. Um, well, uh, Jamie, thank you so much. Pre- prequel, DJ Prequel. Uh, I love talking about things I love, and I love talking about things I love with you because you are such... You. Uh, you're as sort of, um, you know, culturally consumptive and uh, and analytical as, as I am, and I love, you know, being able to, to share recommendations. So thank you so much uh, uh, for making Absolute some time to pleasure.
1: chat.
0: Thank you. And I... Yeah, let's do it for your own body of work. I've con- I've consumed every track, all the video <laughs> content surrounding it, so I can talk without giving too much away. I can talk to you at length about that, but I'm excited to hear all about um, your process in general because it's a beautiful thing to, to be able to release a body I'm of work. I'm so. excited to
1: talk to you about it. I'm excited to speak about Fran Liebowitz for you for... One hour, we could probably we could <laughs> we could stop recording and just keep going and going and going. It so, totally. was great, Dan. Thank you. Thanks for having me.